as we've been talking through it, we've kind of been using this outline uh, to, there it is, to walk through the different pieces of it. And so we've kind of walked through these different sections. We've heard about God's plan of grace, uh, the grace he has for all of us in Christ, for new life in Christ, and then how that affects our society, how we should live differently as a result of that. Uh, and then new standards. Last week we talked a lot about what it looks like to live differently. What standards do we have uh, as a community? And now we are finally getting to the last section. Um, we're going to talk about relationships. So we're going to talk about how the new life that we have in Christ is going to impact all of our different relationships um, and how we need to live differently in them. So the passage that we are tackling today, if you have read it before or are familiar with it, it can be a little bit difficult to wrap your head around or to kind of understand what it's saying. Um, and if you haven't read it before, then that's great. We get to kind of talk through it together. But part of the difference or part of the difficulty in this passage is uh, the, just the difference in culture from the Ephesians church back in somewhere between 50 and 70 AD to now in 2019. We have a very different culture. We live very differently. Um, and even the way we do relationships and how that looks is different from what it was in the Ephesians church. So... Uh, we're going to talk, I'm going to start off by giving us a little cultural background, and then I'm going to kick it over to Joel, who's going to talk about part of the passage, and then we'll kind of switch back and we'll wrap it up. So uh, before we do that, I want to give us some cultural background, and to do that, um, I want to know how many of you have seen these before? Uh, they're kind of these wall decal things that say, like, in this house we, and then there's all these different things that kind of fills in. So this one says things like, we are real, we make mistakes, we say we're sorry. And they kind of function as these, like, guidelines or uh, these kind of a, a house rule, right? Like, we're all going to follow this, and they put it in a central place. This one's, like, massive. It's just right on a wall. Uh, so everybody can see it. You're all expected to live by it. You can be reminded of it because it's right there. Um, yeah, so they function as art now, but they also kind of are these, like, guidelines, right? Like, this is what our house looks like. This is how we operate as a family. Um, I've also seen some fun ones. I had to share these. This one is, says, in this house, and then on the bottom it says, we do geek. Uh, and in the middle it has all these different allusions to things like, uh, we have epic adventures in a galaxy far, far away, and we don't care what muggles think, uh, and we know winter is coming. So I only got about like half of those on there, but I've, I thought they were pretty funny. Um, I've also seen ones that are Disney-themed. Uh, so things like, in this house, we let it go uh, because we believe in akuna matata to infinity and beyond. <laughs> so they're kind of fun, right? They're kind of jokes, and we kind of like to use these as like funny things or art in our house. Uh, but in Paul's time, they had something that was similar to this, but much more serious. <laughs> Um, they, some scholars call these the house rules, or I think Martin Luther called it the household code. So it's something that was common for all houses, and all of the houses had the exact same code, and it was a lot more serious. Um, so it's important to kind of know what that functioned like, and who it included, and what it meant. And so as we were studying it this week, one of the quotes we came across was from someone named Douglas A. Campbell. And he says that the household was a chief basis, paradigm, and reference point for religious and moral, as well as social, political, and economic organization, interaction, and theology. 
so there's a lot of words in there. Um, but basically he's saying that the household at that time was everything. It was a part of the bedrock of the society. It's how everything got done. It's how order was kept in society. It's how information got communicated. It's how the city ran economically. It's how people organized themselves. It was a huge part of the society. It was like how it all functioned for these households. And if you, as we look into the next section of Ephesians, Paul is going to address each member, each section of what a household would have included in his time. So he's going to talk about husbands and wives, which we're going to talk about today, parents and children, which we're going to talk about next week with Mother's Day, <laughs> um, and uh, slaves and masters was the last one. So that's what it was. That's like what all household all included in Paul's time. And so Paul's about to give a somewhat of a new household code to the Ephesians, kind of addressing all of these three groups. Um, and that's honestly like, that's, those were the three groups that existed at that time. There weren't really people outside of that. Uh, and that's why it was so hard to be a widow or a single person in Paul's time because you, didn't, you needed the household to kind of keep everything moving, to fit into society, to get all the benefits of society. Uh, it was just like a huge part of how the Ephesian church and how the whole city operated. And that's a pretty big difference when you think about it to our time now, right? We still value families, I would say, as a society, but they don't carry nearly as much weight as the household did in Paul's time. For one thing, we don't all live super close together, organized into these households. We're much more spread out. People wait longer to get married. People are waiting longer to have kids, partly because you didn't need to do the, we don't need to do those things to be a part of the society anymore. Um, we live in much more separated and individualized culture, which Joel's going to talk about a little bit more. So while decals like we see, like the, in this house we, like they're more about cute sayings than they are being anywhere close to what Paul was talking about here. But I felt like they were kind of the best uh, analogy for us to kind of wrap our heads around what a household code was and why it was so important. Um, and like I said, all that's to say is that they were a really big deal. They were pretty much on par with city laws. So think about it that way. It was kind of like whatever the city of St. Paul, whatever the laws are for St. Paul, that's what these household codes were. And Paul's about to do something with these laws and with these codes that would have been considered pretty crazy by everybody in that time. Uh, he's about to give some role reversals to them uh, and to really kind of flip things and change things in ways that would have seemed just like almost illegal probably even. It just seemed crazy and like what is he even doing? So with that, I want us to keep that in mind as we read through the passage because I think that really helps us give context to what we're going to dive into. Do you want to take it away? Yeah. All right, so what I'm going to do uh, is I'm going to read through the passage and then I'm going to uh, focus in on a few parts of it, and Julie will come back and kind of talk through some of the other parts of it, but I just want to read it all for you so we can kind of get a big idea of like uh, what's going on. So um, Ephesians 5, uh, 21 to 24, Paul says, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit um, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, um, we're going to come back and kind of like break all of this down. Um, but before we do, we thought it would be helpful to kind of start where Paul ends because uh, Paul gives some like specific instructions at the beginning, but then he kind of puts it into like a context or a framework um, that's part of a bigger picture at the end of the passage. And we just thought it'd be helpful to start with the big picture before we kind of work into the, some of the smaller stuff. So um, think of it like this. Like if you're building, like this is, uh, this is the con- some concept art for U.S. Bank Stadium, right, the, where the Vikings play. Um, before you build a, something like, like a house or a stadium like this, like, you want to get a good picture of it so that people building it kind of know what they're building instead of just having a list of all the things that you're doing. Like, you know, this light goes here, and then this light goes like, th- you know, three feet next to it, or this bird-killing pane of glass goes right here next to that bird-killing uh, pane of glass, right? Like, you, it's helpful when you have a big picture for what you're looking at to kind of get a sense for um, what all the individual things you're doing are. And so, um, that's what Paul does at the end of the passage, and he really frames uh, his design for marriage that he's uh, drawing out in two ways. So the first one is what we're going to call one flesh unity, and he quotes uh, Genesis 2.24 in the passage here um, in verse 31. So he's actually a direct quote from Genesis 2.24. This is after um, God has created both Adam and Eve and kind of that, that story in Genesis of, of um of Adam and Eve kind of coming together for the first time and realizing they're meant for each other. This is when this happens. And then um, there's kind of like a pause almost from the author of Genesis where they are like, um, all right, and so, and you know, bec- this story, right, what, what, what I'm telling you now is kind of why now um, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So it kind of, uh, the story kind of becomes like a design for what marriage is supposed to look like in Genesis. And Paul goes all the way back there and quotes it here. Um, and so the main goal that he's talking about is that man and then presumably woman are to leave their families, which for us, like it seems like a, a no-brainer, right? It seems like, yeah, of course you're not going to like live in your parents' basement when you're married or something like that, right? But leaving your family uh, was like a bigger deal in the ancient world because um, the family is like uh, where you get your kind of your value. And, and, and so like who, who your father is and, and, and what like trade your family is in gives you as an individual a lot of like your value and worth in the eyes of the society. And so um, to kind of make this stark command like um, people are supposed to leave these prior value-giving um, uh, relationships kind of behind it, and it's not—it's not totally. It's not like you're, you know, completely separating yourselves out. But you're supposed to become like a distinct um, set from this thing that was supposed to be giving you value in the ancient world. Okay, that's kind of the ideal. Um, now. Uh, and, and that's why you see in, you know, and if you're reading through, like, just in the Gospels, you see a lot of people get identified by who they're the son of, right? Simon, son of Jonah, or whatever, right? 
It's because, like, that who your father is or what family you come from is really important in that time and place, okay? And so Paul is saying, listen, you're supposed to make, there's a conscious leaving of this prior value-giving relationship you're in. Now, for us, that's not a big deal. Like, um, our last names don't matter that much unless, you know, except in some extreme cases, uh, or if you live in a really small town, sometimes it can be kind of hard to get away from your family's reputation, but otherwise it's not hard to, like, get away from your family, right? There, and it's easy for us to kind of create our own value and identity apart from our family in a way that it wasn't in the ancient world. And so, um, but that doesn't mean that Paul's saying we're supposed to leave uh, something behind and cleave to something else is not still applicable to us. And so, when you're kind of thinking about what is the thing that we uh, like are leaving and then uh, cleaving to our spouses for, I think actually um, in our society, like the better analogy is to talk about the thing we're leaving is like, is like our, like we're not, you know, giving up our individuality, but we're leaving that behind as like an ultimate value giving thing, right? Because we're huge into like our, ourselves in this culture and our individuality. There's a new song by Taylor Swift that just came out. Um, it's called uh, Me, um, which right there kind of gives you all you need to know about the song. Um, and, and it's like, uh, she, she got interviewed. It's a song about a relationship, um, and, but it's, it's about like your individuality within the relationship. This is a quote that she had about the song. Me is a song about embracing your individuality and really celebrating it and owning it. I think that with a pop song, we have the ability to get a melody stuck in people's heads, and I want it to be one that makes them feel better about themselves. Um, I've only listened to the song once, thankfully, so it's not stuck in my head typically. Um, I like some Taylor Swift songs, but I do not like this one very much. Um, okay, but the key focus that she's kind of talking about in the song, and I think this kind of um, hits on like uh, the zeitgeist of, of what we live in, is that the key focus in relationships is retaining our own individuality, and so the relationship is supposed to like um, like add to our in individuality in some way. Um, what matters is that in the relationship, we're being completely ourselves. And so, and we're doing that near each other, right? We're, we're, we're living in the same house. We're, we're having sex with one another. You know, we're, we're doing these things that, you know, typically are part of relationship, but it's important to retain our own individuality with one another. And, and I actually think that, like, you know, it, you talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, uh, or maybe it was last week, actually, about, like, how sex rates are going down in the society. And a lot of it is because people struggle with intimacy. And I think this, like, plays into it, right? We're, we're not about being intimate with one another because we're about, like, our own individuality. And so, um, and so the goal of, of marriage being for one flesh intimacy um, is, is something I think that is, a, like, a little bit tough for us as a society. And so... Um, because of, because of this, a lot of relationships tend to become really contractual, I think. And, and a lot of times that's implied or assumed. It's not explicit, um, although sometimes it can be in the form of a prenup or something like that. Um, but, like, it's implied that, like, I'm supposed to be getting something out of this relationship because, you know, it's about my individuality. And if that's not happening, then, like, I'm going to seriously wonder if I, it's the right thing for me to be in this relationship. And, and that's true for, for more, you know, for some people more than others, um, certainly. But that's what we tend to see. And that's how people tend to, like, at least enter into relationships a lot of times. That's the water we swim in. And so, um, and you, you even see this um, just, it gets caught and taught. And so if you look at, like, you know, what teenagers are observing and, like, their attitudes about things as they look at, you know, kind of the, the you know, the large part of their life is still coming up. Um, this is just from a Pew, uh, a Pew study that was done recently. 95% of teens say that 
a career that they love is extremely important or very important to them. So pretty much all teens say, like, this is what is, like, the most important thing to me. And only 47% of teens say that uh, marriage is extremely or very important. So there's a big break between, like, what they're looking uh, for in their lives is kind of the most important thing. Um, a lot more are saying a career is really important to me. And so if that's what you enter into a marriage with that mindset, um, like oneness, this one flesh unity that Paul talks about is going to be really tough because um, you're always going to be pitting that against like your own interests, all right? Um, and so Paul talks about this idea of one flesh, though, which is something that's different from that. Um, and it's, it's something that's supposed to be more humbling because it puts us, it doesn't erase our individuality. It certainly doesn't. It's actually who we are is really important, but who we are is being added to something uh, bigger. Like our identity is expanding out to become a part of something that's bigger than just us, right? And so when Paul talks about, and we'll talk about this a little later, but like seeing your spouse's body as your own body, like you're thinking about something that's so beyond yourself. And you're thinking about not just your, who you are as an individual, but who your spouse is and what your marriage actually looks like. You're, you're actually thinking in terms of an expansion out of who I am, because who I am is something that's connected or a part of a larger whole. Um, and so, um, Paul, we'll, we'll kind of expand on that and talk about that a little bit more. But bef before we do, I want to kind of talk about the other big point that Paul talks about here, the other big thing that he identifies as, as part of his design for marriage, and that is uh, mirroring God's relationship with the church, okay? Um, and, and so, what Paul is saying is like, and I think this is good for, for, for single people and married people to hear, um, because I remember being single, like, I often looked at my friends who are married, and I thought, man, like, and this is, gets kind of, I think, assumed or caught and taught a lot of times uh, in the church, especially like if I can just get married, like that's the most important thing that God has for me. And so like the most important thing about who I am is this making sure I get married. I know that there's that pressure on single people a lot of times. And a lot of times in marriage, there's that pressure too. Um, and Paul is, is saying, listen, marriage is obviously really important, right? It's, it's part of this, uh, it's a part of the new society saying like we need good marriages for this new society to really uh, roll along. But actually is, is like a pointer towards um, this larger reality of the gospel, of Jesus and how he relates to the church, okay? And, and so, like, God and his bride is actually a theme that shows up in Scripture in a lot of places, more than just here in Ephesians. When Paul references this, um, you're intended to kind of hear uh, the allusions to um, other places in Scripture where God identifies himself uh, as as a, as a husband to uh, his people. So a couple examples, Ezekiel 16 um, is a place where it has kind of an extended um, story or analogy or parable of God coming along his people Israel. It doesn't have a happy ending because um, <laughs> he's, com he's, he's talking about how he's been forsaken by his people. And similar in, in the book of Hosea, um, and that's a book that is like all about this, um, it, 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 God calls this prophet Hosea to uh, marry a, a prostitute and then continue to love her um, and, and pursue her even as she kind of breaks their marriage covenant uh, and goes off and, and continues to, to engage in those, in those habits of prostitution. And, and it's supposed to be a picture pointing to um, what God is doing with Israel as they go and they, and it's a really, you know, it's a stark analogy, but prostitute themselves out uh, to other nations and to other gods and, dif and different things. So it's supposed to be a really, like, intense uh, analogy that gets in people's faces. Um, but then, 
if you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, um, the way that, that John sums up like the reality that um, everything is, is, is heading towards is this beautiful uh, bride coming down from heaven to be with Christ. And that's us. That's the people of God that will someday dwell with God in this like amazing marriage ceremony. That's kind of the picture. And, and she's, uh, she's spotless and she's um, been made beautiful uh, by Christ, by his work for her. Um, and, and so that's like the, the theme of this throughout Scripture, and that's what Paul is tapping into. And so when we look at that picture of who God is and how he pursues um, his bride, um, Paul is, is calling, um, husbands particularly, I, I don't think he'd have any problem with, with, with wives living this way either, though, um, like giving themselves up in patience um, and faithfulness um, for the good of their spouse, um, trying uh, to make... Uh, the spouse beautiful and and not out for vengeance, right? Not out to to harm or to malign in any way, but to lift them up and to make them better. And so, um, and and the kind of the way that Paul says that specifically is that Christ gave Himself up for the church, and he's obviously referring to the cross there, right? Kind of the seminal act of 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 service uh, to his to his spouse in that picture, and and that's something that he's placing uh, on us, particularly husbands here. He's saying this is what you're supposed to emulate. And so it's easy to breeze by it and just think, yeah, I, I should, you know, probably try hard to serve my spouse. But like, if you actually really mull that over and think about that, like, it's a really high standard. It's one that we, we will not, if you've been married for, for 10 minutes, you'll realize that you're <laughs> falling short of this. Um, but like, it's still the standard that we're called to emulate and to live out, okay? And so that's the design. That's the big picture of what Paul is talking about here. So it's good to have that in place before we hop into kind of the specific commands here, okay? Um, Paul says um, that this is a, a, a profound mystery, but I've switched into this talking about Christ and the church. And, and because of that, um, you must love e- your, your wife as, as you love yourself, and the wife must respect the husband, okay? So um, we're going to now kind of segue into this bigger picture of what, of what marriage actually looks like and what Paul is actually calling um, uh, the different, uh, the husband and the wife to in the context of this marriage and how like countercultural it is. Even though in some ways it might look a little bit like the culture, it's deeply countercultural. Um, okay? So we have a, a quote, we have a, a few extended quotes from, from, this, um, from this author, but she has some really good points that kind of gets into like what this actually looks like. Because uh, Paul has identified the husband as the head here, okay? And so we read that and we're like, okay, we, we think we know what that means, or maybe you've heard that taught in other places, but it's good to really reflect on like how deeply countercultural what Paul is saying here is, okay? Because it's not what I think we tend to read in a real like um, prima facie way when we just kind of read through the passage quickly and pull out from it what we, what we think it's saying on the surface, okay? So um, Michelle Lee Barnwell, um, she says this, so the normal expectation in the Greco-Roman world is that the head is the leader and the provider of the body. And she actually walks through like examples of like Caesar being shown as head or, or, or the, you know, the emperor or whatever is the head of the, the nation that he runs or something like that, Okay. Consequently, it's also the head's responsibility to ensure its own safety and the body's responsibility to sacrifice itself for the sake of the head. And again, he runs through examples of where um, ancient writers are saying, like, the head is so important, you know, everything needs to sacrifice and love the head. As a result, we would expect Paul to instruct the wife, which is the body, to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the husband, the head. So he's touching on this commonly held view that, that men and women were men as the head and to be honored, okay, but he's suggesting the opposite, okay? 
Okay? So, and, and, and this is what we see in Ephesians 5, 25, 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Um, so actually, after reading like that section that we read at the very beginning where wives submitting to husbands as the head, you would naturally expect Paul to say, um, so husbands, lead or rule over your wife, right? But he doesn't say that. That's not what we get. He gets and said this guideline um, for, what, for what his vision for headship, for, you know, if we can call it that, looks like, and that's a completely like different type of headship, okay? It's a different type of, of way to be the head from what people who are originally reading this would have expected, Okay? She, she continues, but that is not what we find. Rather, Paul states the reverse. The husband as the head is called to give himself up for the wife as his body, just as Christ gave himself up for the church, which is his body. Furthermore, where normal expectations would have the body being the one to love the head, Paul states that the husband is to love the wife as his body, as Christ loved the church. Um, so there's a complete reversal here. Like, instead of the husband saying, like, what's best for me and trying to make sure that uh, the wife and the rest of the family unit is doing that, the husband now asks himself, what is best for her? What's best for our one flesh unity? And whatever that is, I'm going to pour myself completely into that out of self-giving love that emulates Christ as Savior, okay? So it's not really about authority here. It's about sacrifice. It's about working together. And so Paul's not calling husbands to be like the CEO of the marriage. That's not what we see here. Um, that, that is, that's not the, the analogy that he's making here. Even though, he, even though Christ is like, in other places we hear about Christ as our king, right? Paul doesn't use that language to describe husbands here. He uses the language of savior, the language of giving up on behalf of, of the other. And that's, that's the way that husbands he's calling to imitate Christ here is by giving themselves up uh, for uh, the wife, for the, for the goal of sacrificing for her, for making her beautiful, and to present her as radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Like that's the calling, that's the, that's the, the comparison that Paul's making. So, so the call is for husbands to ask themselves, what is going to present my wife as radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish? What, is it, what does it mean to love her as my own body? Um, and so this is a headship that initiates and takes the first step to make sure uh, that the wife and this one flesh unity flourish. That's the call that he's putting on husbands here. Okay, we'll keep going with, with the quote from Michelle Lee Barnwell. The fundamental nature of the reversal is critical. It would have struck Paul's audience not only as odd, but even more so as being against nature. The sacrifice of the head would be suicidal for the entire body since the head provides guidance for the whole. When Paul asks husbands to sacrifice themselves for their wives, he asks them to do something that goes against this fundamental order of society, which would have been considered disruptive or even dangerous. So that's how, that's how this would have been viewed in that time, where, where it's definitely like a very uh, patriarchal society that they're living in, right? Women are viewed as, as not only as less than men, like, um, but like physically and mentally and like all these different ways, like not as superior as men. It's not hard to find out like how patriarchal that society was. And so for Paul to say something like this goes against everything that people would have been, uh, would have known in that time, in that time place. And so something else that we find about 
Christian marriage, I think, is that it should be deeply countercultural. Like, it should not take its marching orders from the rest of the culture. It should be because it's coming from a different place, right? Uh, and so, whether that's a patriarchal society, whether that's a matriarchal society, or whether it's a society where men and women are just seen as basically interchangeable, as if there's no difference between them whatsoever. Um, and our culture, like, has proponents of all three of those. Like, equally speaking loudly, and it's, it's like, it, it can be hard to understand, like, how does this passage fit with those things that we maybe hear? We have people on all three of those sides who are really, uh, you know, um, zealous for those views, and, and I think um, we get stuck in between that, and, and, like, I think this is a hard thing, but it's also a good thing, is that what Paul says uh, when we come to this is that um, as much as people on all three of those places might hate it, this doesn't fit neatly with any of those categories, right? It's, com- it's a different thing than all three of them, okay? It, it, it can, I think it, can, it has overlap with all three of those, and it can fit into a society that's dumb, you know, has predominantly has one of those three kind of as, as the way that everyone tends to view things. It can fit within all of those, um, but, but it is still different. It's still distinct, and it's still going to be countercultural no matter where it goes. And I think it's good for us to uh, reflect on that deeply and to ask ourselves, um, you know, what, what, how are we living and how are we taking how we live uh, from the culture as opposed to how are we taking what we live um, from the gospel? Because that's what Paul is grounding all of this on. He's grounding it right on the gospel. Okay? So kind of to cap it all off, uh, Paul says, um, he talks about how... Uh, and he's talking to husbands again here. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So to cap it all off, he's bringing together this idea of one flesh and then Christ is the church, okay? He talks about just as Christ feeds and cares for the church, we are supposed to see our spouses or our wives as our one body, right? And Paul actually says in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually gives kind of the, he says the same thing for both men and women. So he says, um, husbands don't have authority over their own bodies, their wife also has authority over it, and vice versa. He says both in 1 Corinthians 7. Here he just talks about uh, husbands, but, um, but you see that Paul has this, you know, kind of for both. And th- this is really challenging, um, not just because of the culture, but like, it, it's just like a hard way to live. So, um, so I'll use myself as an example. When we got married, so I had lived my whole life, um, well, not my whole life, I guess, but from college on, um, like basically deciding like 20 minutes before I ate what my meal was going to be. Like I didn't really put any thought into it until I was like, oh man, it's 5.30, I should probably decide what I'm doing for dinner and I'm just going to run a Chipotle or something like that. You know, it was very easy and I put very little thought into it. And then I got married, and we did this thing called meal planning, <laughs> and we, like, had conversations about, like, what time we were eating and, like, where we were going to, like, be for that stuff. And it was so hard, like, to expand my thinking out beyond myself, just because I'd never done it before. Um, and that, that's, like, a, that's like, I, I imagine that some of you who are married, like, you, you get that. Like, that's maybe something you've, you've stumbled onto as well. Um, that's a picture of what, like a small picture of what one flesh looks like, right? You are now thinking about yourself. You're not just thinking about your stomach. You're thinking about two stomachs now. <laughs> and you're, you're thinking about, like, uh, what does it look like for us to, like, together, like, make sure that we're both being fed, right? And that's just, like, the type of, the type of mindset that it's like if you were right-handed your whole life, and now Paul is saying you need to be ambidextrous, you need to be able to use your left hand in the same way you use your right hand. That's kind of what's happening here. Um, and so, um, 
one flesh uh, thinks in terms of we and not me, okay? And I think that's, um, that, that is what Paul means when he talks about like both submitting ourselves out of reverence to Christ. Like out of following Christ, we're submitting ourselves to one another um, and we're thinking more about um, the one flesh unity than we are about ourselves, which oftentimes means thinking more about our spouse than we do ourselves, okay? Uh, I'm going I'm to turn it back over to Julie now um, and she's going to kind of close it off here. Yeah, so we, we kind of jumped around in the passage a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to jump back to the beginning and kind of talk about what it says in the, in the first part. So this is kind of the, the directive towards wives. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And again, I have mentioned this already, and we've kind of, we're doing things a little differently. We're kind of using a little more historical background and more quotes from other places because this is a hard passage for modern people to read, right? It sounds very different from what we're used to. Uh, so I'm going to start with what this isn't saying. So what does it not mean that the, hus the wife is supposed to submit to her husband? So it does not say that husbands have authority over their wives. Uh, the word for authority, the Greek word for it, is actually not used in this passage at all. In fact, it would make very little sense in the context of the whole letter of Ephesians if now Paul is saying, hey, now we're going to, you know, we've been talking about unity nonstop and how we're all supposed to live together, and now I'm going to split us up into different groups and say these people are better than these people and these people are better than these people. It just wouldn't fit with what Paul has been saying thus far. So we really do not think that he's saying that they have authority. And the household code, it, that's, it really wasn't about putting up barriers between different groups of people. And as Paul said in earlier in his letter, we're all dead in sin. We've all been saved by Christ, uh, by nothing that we've done, so that nobody can boast. So again, Paul is talking about how there's really no barriers put up between these different groups. So he's not saying uh, that one group is better than the other. He also doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. Uh, he's going to, in the next section, ask children to obey their parents. And he could have used the exact same word there, but he doesn't. He chooses something different. So I think we have to ask, why? Why did he use a different word, and what does that word mean? And so, again, one of the other commentaries we read uh, said this. It said that the concept of a husband who issues commands and of a wife who gives him obedience is simply not found in the New Testament. A wife's submission is something quite different from obedience. It's a voluntary self-giving to a lover whose responsibility is defined in terms of constructive care. It's a love's response to love. And so this is kind of hitting on what Joel has been talking about with the husband's role. So it's not, it's, I just really want to be clear that it's not about obeying or authority or being better than uh, husbands or wives. And I want to make that really clear because I know that in some Christian circles, uh, it has been taught that women need to just do exactly what their husbands say. And that in some cases, that has led to really harmful situations, uh, in some cases even to abuse. And so I want to be sensitive to that, and I want to make it really clear that that is not okay. That is not how we see Christ treat women in the New Testament. If anything, he gives them more value and dignity than anybody else uh, around. And it's not what we see anywhere else in Scripture either. So I just want to repeat it again because it's that important. Abuse is not okay in any form from any person. And so if you are 
in a situation that is abusive or you know someone that is, please come talk to us or to someone because that is not what we see in scripture uh, and that's definitely not what Paul is saying here. So then what does it mean? What does it mean to submit? Uh, And this is one reason we had Joel talk first about husbands because it's easier to understand what Paul's calling wives to submit to when you know what he's asking the husbands to do. So in one way, I think the, the submission here just means to let the husband sacrifice for them. And that sounds simple or sounds kind of silly, right? Like why would you have to tell someone to let someone else serve you? Uh, But I think, again, if we think about the cultural context, it makes a lot of sense. I think it probably would have been a really big struggle for the women in that time period to let their husbands serve them. Because up until that point, the whole rule was, wives, you sacrifice for your husbands no matter what. Uh, And there was this kind of hierarchy and all these different things. So to be told, actually, we're going to flip that and you're going to be okay with it. And even though it looks countercultural, maybe your friends are giving you a hard time, or maybe you even are feeling like, this is not what I'm supposed to do as a wife. I'm being a bad wife. I should be serving the, the husband. It just goes against everything that they had been taught and everything that was going on in culture. And so I think they probably would have really struggled with this command to let their husband serve them. It might have even been looked down upon. It would have been considered improper. And so Paul's giving them this reminder. It's okay. It's good to have your husband serve you. And then on the other hand, he's not telling wives to stop sacrificing for their husbands, right? The the kind of what had been happening would be that the wives were sacrificing. And so it's not like he's saying, okay, before it was only the wives who had to sacrifice, and we're just going to switch it and make it so now it's only the husbands who have to sacrifice. He's saying, let's take this thing that was pretty one-sided and let's make it more mutual. Let's make it something that is more unifying and fits within this new life that we've been given, this new grace that we've been given, and all the things we've been talking about, about how we're creating a new society. So again, it's not a one-sided thing. uh, And while Paul may be asking the husbands to be the ones who take initiative, again, the goal is always unity, mutual love, and submission. And in fact, we see this in other places where Paul's writing to churches. So in Philippians, another uh, letter that Paul wrote to a different church, he says, uh, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in all relationships, not just in your marriage. Uh, And he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the goal is to create a new Christian household, right? We've been talking about these household codes that operates differently from the culture around it. It's a household that represents Christ and the church and is characterized by self-giving love. And honestly, I think for Paul, part of this was like a, a strategic plan, right? Like if we could change the bedrock of society, the thing that all society worked upon, these households, think about what that could do for the city and for everything around it, right? Like if you could change the infrastructure of the city, how could that then change the world as he goes out? So I really think that Paul thought, hey, if we can create households that are loving and are imaging Christ, think about the big social, economical, and political changes that that could mean for the whole city. Okay, so then how do we apply all of these things that were true from a different culture uh, to our culture almost 2,000 years later? 
we've been talking about this kind of all week, and so I just want to share a few things that we really wanted to highlight uh, as to how we can take this and move forward. So one of them is that marriage has a greater purpose. Joel talked a lot about this, so I won't rehash it too much, but uh, it's really supposed to be something that represents Christ in the church. It's supposed to demonstrate love, forgiveness, care, self-sacrifice, uh, and really, as we've talked about, that's not necessarily how you see marriage today. So whether you're married or single, uh, it's just good to think about what your view of marriage is. What do you see it being the purpose? Uh, and even as someone who's married, I tend to sometimes feel like, yeah, I want my marriage to be something that, like, I want it to make me feel less lonely, or I want it to make me feel better about myself, or whatever it is. And so whether you're single and desire to be married, or if you don't, uh, it's good to look at marriage and not just think of it as that's a cure for loneliness, or that's a tax break, or uh, whatever it is, you know, I think that you're going to be really disappointed if that's how you're viewing marriage as something that's just going to change your life and make it better. Yeah, I suppose the tax break is a, a real thing. But um, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be really unhappy if you go into marriage thinking like marriage is just going to be all about me and it's going to make my life so much better because actually it's a lot of work uh, and it can be challenging at times. And so that kind of leads to the second point is just let's, uh, let's work on our marriages. Let's prioritize them. So if you are married, uh, again, it can be really easy, as culture tells us, that like you're kind of just roommates. <laughs> you just kind of live, you're living together, but you kind of do your own thing and you hang out when it's convenient for you. Um, Joel referenced that article I talked about, how about how people are like afraid of intimacy and stuff. And they actually said that there's a trend in building like master suites and master bedrooms to have two bathrooms because people don't want to like have to share a bathroom. <laughs> and so it's like we really kind of view marriage as like, yeah, I'm just here and I'm going to do my own thing and you're going to do your thing and we'll come together when it's convenient. And I really think for us to prioritize our marriage to work on it is could Again, what if we could change society by changing what our relationships look like? So I don't know what it looks like for you uh, for you to work on your marriage right now, I don't know if that means, hey, you need to bring someone else into it to help you kind of work through something that you're struggling with. Maybe you need to see a counselor. Maybe you just need to be more open with people in your community group who can kind of hold you accountable to certain things. But let's let's do that. Let's work on it. Let's work on our communication. Let's work on our conflict resolution. Uh, not just because if you do, you'll have a better marriage and it'll make you happier, which it might, I don't know, but because it's worth it and because it's something that's supposed to be a representation of Christ in the church to the watching world. Okay, and then that's what kind of leads to the last point of just um, that idea of submitting to and loving one another. So as I talked about, it might have been hard for the women in Paul's time to be okay with letting their husbands serve them. I think wives currently have a hard time with that for a totally different reason, <laughs> right? We're strong, independent women, and we don't need to be saved by a man, uh, and I'm totally great with that. But we do also need to remember that we're not, uh, like, we can't do all things. And if this is truly supposed to be, if marriage is truly supposed to be a picture of the gospel, we need to be reminded that uh, we're not perfect. <laughs> we are sinners, and we need help. Uh, and so I think sometimes it's good to allow your spouse to serve you, honestly, just because it reminds you that you can't do all things on your own. You need God, and your spouse can be a reminder of that and uh, how you do that. And the same goes for, for husbands, too, right? I think maybe they struggle with uh, not wanting to be served or to be helped for similar reasons. I know sometimes uh, we've talked about how it's like can seem like, oh, if your wife is trying to serve you, it must think that 
they don't think you can do it or they think they can do a better job or whatever it is. Whatever your reason is for feeling like, oh, I don't want help, I don't want to allow my spouse to serve me, I think we really need to work through the pride that's in there or any of the other things because uh, it really is supposed to be a mutual thing where we see an image and a picture of Christ serving the church. And in order for this to work, we both need to be willing to serve each other, husbands and wives. We need to be giving, be willing to give up our preferences, um, and we need to be willing to be self-sacrificing. And I think it can be easy, even in offering to serve, to make it about ourselves, right? We can uh, offer to serve in a way that is really convenient for ourselves. Or, you know, if you're offering to do certain chores, you're like, oh, I'm going to do the chores that I like to do and leave the ones I hate, then my spouse can do that, right? I hate vacuuming. So for me to volunteer to vacuum could be a more self-sacrificing way to serve. I like vacuuming though. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you kind of get what I'm saying. Sometimes we can like act as if we're being really self-sacrificial, but really we're just doing what's convenient to us and not actually thinking about the needs of our spouse. And so let's be self-sacrificing in a way that is truly showing that we understand the needs of our spouse and how we can serve them in a way that will help them feel served and not just in a way that makes us feel good about ourselves because that can be tempting. So we're going to move now to a time of communion and worship. And I think it's really great to be able to do communion after this because it's a reminder of our collective union with Christ. So it's our, if we're, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, communion is also a picture of that. And so this is a great way for us to be reminded of um, what Christ has done for us in our lives and how he has served us and loved us self-sacrificially and to be thankful for that. And so we are going to have the worship band come up and play some songs. And if you, we just ask that you are a follower of Christ to take communion. So if you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and do that with us. And if you haven't, we'd love for you to really consider that um, and take some time to pray about what it would look like for Christ to be the Lord of your life. And so uh, we're going to have Joel pray for us and then we're going to wrap up. Father, we thank you that um, you you gave yourself up for us in your Son, um, and that you have been doing this for your people for uh, for centuries, uh, and that you uh, give us such a beautiful picture of what that looks like, and a challenge for us uh, to live that way too, because it is such a challenging thing uh, to live that way. Um, I pray that you would give uh, the husbands and wives in this room the grace to uh, be able to live that out um, through your spirit um, and um, help us to, uh, to be people who, who follow you as king by uh, submitting ourselves and love, uh, loving our spouses um, more and more every single day, Lord. Um, and that as we do that, that would be a, a picture of the gospel um, to the glory of your name. Um, in our neighborhoods, in our in our friend circles, in our in our families, Lord, whatever places you have put us in, help us to to do that well, Lord. We we praise you, we thank you, uh, we love you, and in your Son Jesus' name, Amen.